This episode of the Planet Microcap podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 166. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Save the date. The Planet Microcap Showcase Virtual is coming up fast and furious. It's happening April 20 through 22nd, 2021. The website is live. And not only is the website live, we have our initial speaker sponsors and our presenting company. So go and check that out at www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. We've added a few more speakers that are signing up and we'll have the full agenda. I'll be announcing that relatively soon with uh, some of the new panels and keynotes that we'll be doing. So registration is open. Go register on the website. Click the register button. Very simple, very easy. I look forward to seeing you all there. Again, the website is www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. This week from the SNN Podcast Network, we have new episodes of In the Market Trenches with Gary Reby and Eric Fury, the Investors Roundtable, and Avoiding the Crowd with Maj Sway Dunn, all coming at you this week. You can check out all the new episodes on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean, or wherever you stream podcasts, and catch the video chats on the SNN Network YouTube channel at youtube.com slash SNNWire. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Jim Royal. He is the author of the new book titled The Zen of Thrift Conversions, How to Turn Hidden Bank Stocks into Big Gains. Uh, Jim and his book were recommended by one of our listeners. Thank you, Gunner. And I'm so stoked that he was. Uh, I never even heard of thrift conversions before this conversation. 
And that's saying a lot living in the obscure microcap land that we do. Uh, that's why this episode is the one-on-one class version. And, and I think I might be able to tell you what a thrift conversion is now, let alone spell it. Um, Jim does a great job detailing this asset class. And then as an awesome bonus, he was a contestant on Jeopardy. So we chat about his experience there as well. So come for thrift conversions, leave with a great story about Jeopardy. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 166 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my interview with Jim Royal. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me right now, my special guest on the program is Jim Royal. He is the author of the book, The Zen of Thrift Conversions, How to Turn Hidden Bank Stocks into Big Gains. We are going to learn all about it today. We're going to do thrift conversions for dummies episode today. So, Jim, thanks for joining me, man. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's great to have you on. So this is our first time meeting. I got where, where are you based? Are you uh, so in, I'm not, in a live in a library somewhere or what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite a quite a few books in the background, right? The uh, no, so I'm actually uh, based in St. Louis um, and uh, uh, work work from home normally as a reporter for Bankrate. And uh, yeah, so uh, the book actually came out of some uh, 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 my history as being an investor in special situations when I worked for The Motley Fool. So a lot of my experience and professional backgrounds from there. Oh, so you're, you're part of The Motley Fool machine. I swear. It's like every other guest I have on here is like, you know, and, you know, when I did my time at The Motley Fool, you know, right on this <laughs> or that thing. So, I, I mean, how, what was that experience like? Clearly, it set you up for writing a book on one of the most niche special situations out there. <laughs> yeah. So, no, it's great. I think The Motley Fool does a great job about uh, teaching its analysts how to look at businesses, uh, focusing on the important issues and, um, uh, you know, and not getting bogged down in some of the minutia. Um, and so thinking big picture, uh, and being generalist. And I think that that helps. So when I was there, um, I was an analyst uh, for them and, and, um, uh, uh, investigated special situations, including of course, thrift conversions, um, as well as spinoffs. And so that's, that's some of my background. Um, and, uh, in the book, for example, I, I talk about a lot of investments, uh, that I actually made, um, personally or professionally, uh, when I was working there. So um, it's it was a great environment for just encouraging critical thought and helping you develop skill, right? And and really taking an approach where you could just investigate, right? You could investigate anything. So that's a that's a great sort of open mindset. Absolutely. Now I'm gonna have to at some point I'm gonna get the founders on here to talk about the machine. Because right. it's really it's really incredible how they've been able to just create this machine for people to then you know mm -hmm. splinter out and do do you know stuff like what you're doing and so many others that are that that have come on the show so yeah tom and david are fantastic they're they're awesome and <laughs> and so you know one other thing i have to touch on before we get into your background and everything like that i know you just touched on this briefly in, in the interview you just did with toby but i mean jeopardy is one of my favorite shows i got it on <laughs> at seven o'clock every day i 
I like to think I'll be a contestant one day, but then I know I'm going to run into the likes of you and get completely smoked. <laughs> so, I mean, t- give us a little bit. What was, well, how was the experience? What, what was mean, it like? If it's, if it's uh, all about uh, uh, pop music, uh, I think you could beat me. <laughs> um, the, I, no, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, no, it was a fantastic experience. And of course I'm just referencing, um, uh, how I blew out uh, on a on a basically a, a true daily double uh, toward the end of the second Jeopardy round, and uh, as as basically the 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 move I had to make in order to catch first place, and uh, I missed this question about Adele, and so of course I have to joke about it um, and, and make fun of it uh, whenever I can later on. The um, but yeah, no, absolutely fantastic experience. I've wanted to be on there since you know since I was a kid. And, um, so I finally, you know, meeting Alex Trebek, um, and just being on the show and, you know, even when I'm on there, uh, you know, and I, I take that daily double and I'm like, Alex, I've been waiting 30 years to make, to say, let's make it a true daily double. And that was absolutely the position to say it, the time to say it. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, it was, it was a good, wager sort of structurally, right? It's what I had to do at that moment to, to try to get into first place. Uh, and unfortunately it just didn't work out. Right. But, right. um, it was a absolutely total blast. I got to see a, a full week's worth of filming and, you know, I just can't say enough. I mean, they, they run just a really professional shop there, the, the show runners and just, uh, it was, it was just a blast all the way through. So dream come true, really. Absolutely. Well, here, we're going to stay on this train because I, like as a, as a fellow Jeopardy fan, mm-hmm. You know, it seems like the strategy has changed so much since uh, since since Ken obviously was the first minute, and then James with with how he was able to accumulate so much uh, money and and go on that run in a much shorter period of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, we're about to do like some like Jeopardy gameplay with parallels to investing. Don't worry, we're gonna get to the book, but I mean, we gotta stay on this. So sure. I mean, how how has that strategy changed? And did you try? and do some of that James like strategy when you, when you got on there? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, a lot of my background, like the interesting thing about Jeopardy or other similar types of games. I'm also a member of an online trivia group called Learned League, which has tens of thousands of people. Ken Jennings was, was, has been, I'm not sure if he's currently registered, but he has been in that league. And it's great because there's the game element, the betting element, and the actual knowledge element, right? And so like, if you're smart, uh, you can use that betting element to leverage that knowledge, right? So, um, and I I think one of the things I wanted to go in strategy-wise going into the game was say, hey, look, you can beat me on knowledge, but I don't want you to beat me on the game playing aspects, the wagering aspects, right, of the game. And literally that first day, I saw uh, a contestant lose merely because she placed the wrong bet in Final Jeopardy, right? And so there's situations in which, you know, you got your number one, number two contestant really close, right? Both of those contestants have to basically wager it all. And if if they end up missing, the only way, sorry, the only way in third place you can win is if they both end up missing. So you wager based on that outcome, right? And which means you basically wager nothing. And right. so she missed being a champion just because of the wagering element, right? And so that that was the type of move I wanted to make sure that I didn't, you know, screw up on. And, you know, going for it all on that daily double, um, 
was absolutely the right move. You don't play for second place, right? You play for right. first place. And that was what I needed to do to play the game right at that moment, even though it simply didn't work out because of the knowledge. Right. Well, you know, the other day, I don't know if you watched this episode where they had, I was watching it live and the two contestants, I think were both at like 14,200 and, oh, and the third, yeah. and then the, and then third place she was at 2000 and what they both did, which was the right move, no doubt was they right. both went all in because mm-hmm. let's say even if it, they both went all in, but then the 2001 put in zero because she knew that the other two had to put it, go all in. And that was the only shot that she had at winning the game. Of course, they both got it wrong, or all three got it wrong, and she ended up winning the game with 2,000. It was incredible. That's And that's exactly what I'm talking about, right? You want to go in with the right betting strategy. Um, you know, if you're in that situation, if you're third place, you can't even bet enough to get a, ahead of either yeah. of those. If so you you play this you play the you play off the strategy and you hope and that's and that's how you win right when i was on there i was like desperately trying to get that daily double like this is my chance and uh you know unfortunately it was in female singers mononymous so one named female <laughs> singers which is really must be my worst category and and steel companies and i'm like please let the daily double be on the steel companies category but it wasn't so I mean, so I mean, you, have you been listening to Adele nonstop just to try and work through the grief, or how? I mean, how how did we do this? Like the, that's how the, you got to process it somehow. Yeah, every once in a while, it it, it kind of comes back to me. It's like, man, I just you know, someone the, like you. Right. Oh, no. Eventually, she's going to stumble onto my tweet, right, where I say, "If only I had known someone like you," <laughs> and. Uh, that's going to eventually get out there and uh, she'll reply and it'll be a big joke. So oh, that's, that's too funny. Well, so at, I, by the way, just quick, like, you know, one of the things I framed when I was going out there was like, this is a call option, right? I'm not paying any money to come out here. It's a call. Maybe I go and win 50 or a hundred thousand dollars or more, whatever. Right. It's, it's a no cost call option to me. Yep. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that sounds like the, especially on the, if you're on the first game before you're, you know, next day champion, right? Because at that point you have something to lose, right? Like now, or at least that feeling that, all right, well, I could keep getting more money. Like I won yesterday. I could win again. Oh no, I don't, you like, you don't, you like play not to lose. Meanwhile, when that first time it feels like you play more to win and you kind of have that like, Hey, I mean, it's gravy, baby. Like whatever happens, happens. Like, let's just do, do my best. So it's pretty, it's interesting that mentality going into that game. And I mean, similar with invest, I mean, let's start, let's go here. I mean, what are some parallels that you had when you think about your investing career and everything that you learned in the Molly pool? Like what are, what are there any parallels into Jeopardy gameplay or just trivia gameplay and, and investing that you've been able to use in your career? I mean, I think absolutely the best one is, uh, you know, thinking about free call options, right? Where do I, where do I have really low downside and, uh, some medium, maybe even large upside, right? At little cost, right? So, you know, as I'm talking about like, well, going on Jeopardy is a free call option, right? It's, they're gonna pay me, regardless of how I do, they're gonna pay me a thousand bucks to get out there. I'll have some fun in LA, get to have a, you know, a dream come true, uh, you know, realize a childhood dream, meeting Alice Trebek, being on the show. Like, how can I lose? I just can't lose on that. And so that's one model I think about often in investing, right? There's very little downside. I think thrifts, this carries over very, very well. You're buying thrifts at a discount to tangible book value. 
So your, your discount, or sorry, your downside is tremendously low. You've got good, sometimes great upside uh, for three to five years on individual positions. You know, and that's the type of thing where you bet heavy, right? Um, when you've got low downside, a, a track record in this space of doing really well. Um, that's, the, that's, to me, a, a great setup uh, for good returns with low risk. Very cool. All right. We're getting, I promise, like I have one question in between and then we're going to, and then we're getting into the third. Sure. So I'd love to get more of your background. You know, yeah. I, where, where did your passion for investing begin? And then, and that, that'll take us to thrift. Yeah. Yeah. I think, so uh, I think I'll probably have another, I'll probably have another follow-up and everyone's going to just ask the damn thrift conversions question, but let's get, love to hear where you're passionate. Yeah. Investing. Yeah. So I think, um, I think probably like a, a, a lot of, a lot of boys growing up, it was like baseball cards, right? It was like, Hey, look, you, you got the, yeah. I mean, it was super easy. You see, Hey, look, these are, this is worth a dollar. This card's worth a dollar. This card's worth $2. Right. The Beckett, and then, the Beckett books, everything. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so you're opening the wax packs or whatever. And, uh, you know, it sort of started for me there, but then tying it to, oh, this guy's, this guy hit is like on fire this month, right? He's hit 10 home runs, right? And his baseball card goes up, right? So you can sort of, in a certain way, tie it to, to fundamental performance, uh, you know, of the player, right? Like you can with a stock or, you know, I, I was like the nerdy kid who, who was like, wait, if these commons are worth five cents each and I buy a pack for 35 cents, then I'm really getting, you know, whatever, 75 cents worth of cards, right? So I'm like doing this, you know, really simple arbitrage in my head <laughs> about buying wax packs, you know, as a 10-year-old or something like that. And uh, so uh, probably got to the start there. But then, you know, I, I did um, economic stock picking classes in high school and stuff like that. You know, I got a stock that went, was like a four-bagger in a semester. I was like, wow, this is great. Uh, just great to follow the market and fun and interesting and, you know, a way to make money and, and uh, have that sort of intellectual stimulation or challenge. Very cool. All right. So and by the way, the, how lucky that you actually had a stock picking class in high school, right? Like, wish everybody could have that experience. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I, it's, I had it in fifth grade, but, you know, I still even think that, like, I wish I could, that continued on in every grade, but yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing. So I mean, so, so catch, let catch us up, you know, I mean, you mentioned that you worked with the Motley Fool, you know, um, so catch us up to where you got the, the desire and inspiration to them write the book. Yeah. So it was really, uh, you know, I had probably been investing, I think 10 years or something before I had ever heard of thrift conversions. Right. And it's like super easy to overlook. Um, and, uh, you know, when I, so I was, I was, uh, uh, investing in special situations when I worked for the fool and, you know, I'm just inve investigating different types and sort of stumbled onto thrift conversions. And it's like, this is really interesting. This is circa right after the financial crisis, right? 2009, 2010. And I'm just reading about what with thrift conversions, low downside. I'm reading Joe Stilwell uh, in a wall street journal uh, piece. And he's, he's talking about being an activist and how cheap they are and, I was like, this is, you know, this is a great setup. These sort of small out of the way banks that nobody's heard of and, you know, at low prices with the uh, potential buyouts, you know, a history of being bought out uh, at premiums to book value. And it's like, 
it's just a lot of good stuff and, and activists to help sort of help you realize that value too, right? So there's just like a lots of really cool elements there. And I thought, you know, it took me 10 years uh, of looking at the market before I had sort of heard of these. And, um, you know, because the media so often just focuses on the big names, right? Like the big cap stocks, the big IPOs. And it's just easy to miss these smaller things um, and uh, which just sort of fly under the radar. So I just thought that was such a cool thing. I invested in them, um, had good results. And I thought it was just, a, how about we write a book? How about I write a book that um, explains how these work, how they operate? There's literally no book that sort of runs you through the whole life cycle of these, how to invest in them at every stage, what to look out for. Um, what to watch. It's all based on, you know, my personal experience of investing in them. And uh, it's really, you know, I heard somebody call it a crash course in how to, you know, invest in thrift conversions, right? And so I think that's a really appropriate way. But uh, so I write this for uh, 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 a beginner or uh, intermediate audience. Um, uh, but I think that there's something that uh, everybody can get out of it with the interviews. If you're familiar with banks and th things like that, I have interviews at the at the back of the book with like three the three big activists um, in the thrift conversion space: Joe Stilwell, Larry Seidman, and Rich Lashley. And they talk about uh, how they view how they view banks and how they invest. And so I think it's just a great cap because those guys are so vital in the thrift industry, right? I, I don't think there's another industry that is so dominated by activist investors as thrifts are. And that's just, it's great if you're a, you know, a minority shareholder in those. So anyway, okay. roundabout All answer. Right. Oh, no, no, it, we're good. Now I think we're ready for the thrift conversions question. Now, as I said at the open, this is going to be the thrift conversions for dummies episode. So for those who actually know what they are, this is probably going to be the part where you're going to be like, all right, get to the, get to the meat, you know, for me. But so thrift conversions for dummies, you know, what are they? And and maybe can you give us an example? Sure, sure. sure. So yeah, when whenever I uh, talk about thrift conversions, really what we're talking about is uh, typically what's a pretty small community-oriented bank. And what distinguishes it here is that it's mutually owned, right? It's not a stock company. It's mutually owned and by its depositors. So if you have uh, an account with the bank, you really kind of own a stake in that bank. And that really doesn't mean very much until, you, I mean, you can't go in and say, hey, this is my slice of tangible book value and I want it, right? You can't really do anything about that until the bank decides to do an IPO. And then you basically get first crack at taking a stake in that business, right? So you are given the right to buy stock in that in the IPO um, ahead with 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 more preference than anybody else, right? And so it's a great opportunity, and it's a great opportunity because basically you've got all this tangible book value, all this book value equity that's sitting in the bank that, in a real sense, nobody has an economic claim on, right? So when you buy it, you buy into that bank, you effectively get a share of that for no extra cost. Right. So your money in it, like unlike in a traditional IPO, right, uh, where uh, a buyer in that IPO, uh, that money might be going to the buyer's money might be going to somebody who's looking to cash out. It might actually go to the company. 
it might go in a multiple different uh, ways. And so there's some misalignment of incentives. Like why is, if this is such a great deal, why are these people selling this stock to me and why should I be buying? And so in contrast to that with like a thrift IPO, you've got everybody sitting on the same side of the table uh, buying in at the same terms, right? And even the bank is not selling it to you exactly, right? Oh, sorry, the bank is not cashing out, right? All that money that they raise in the IPO goes straight into the bank. And you get a piece of that equity completely free on top of that, right? So you're investing alongside with the same incentives as managers and insiders. Um, and that's a great setup. This is actually one of the things Seth Klarman like really points out is this alignment of incentives that really distinguishes the thrift IPO from any other IPO uh, or basically any other IPO. And so that's a great setup. Uh, so I think in uh, big terms, that's what a thrift conversion is. is it's moving from this mutual form of ownership to a stock-based form of ownership. And a lot of these banks are 30, 40, $50 million market caps, really pretty small. Um, uh, communities, they operate in one or two or have just a, a handful of branches. There's no way you would have heard of them, basically. Um, so, right. so so here's my first dumb follow-up question. So maybe I, we need a quick background on what the what is the traditional ownership structure look like for these community banks, just to get a better idea of, you know, going from this mutual form to then a stock form of ownership. What, what does that look like? Yeah, so it's, I mean, the bank is managed, right? right? I mean, somebody's managing it and somebody holds that, but there's, it's, it literally is mutually owned. That doesn't, like, if you're a depositor, that doesn't mean anything in terms of um, um, uh, your ability to access any capital in that bank, right? You don't even have an economic claim on that bank. And in fact, really nobody has an economic claim on, uh, as, as an owner, on that bank. Um, sometimes they're structured, uh, there might be a mutual holding company that technically owns uh, the banking operations uh, or you know, the bank that actually uh, does the loans, but um, there's, there's no actual owner of that capital. And that's what's striking, right? And that's, that's what helps create the opportunity. It, there's always a situation, sort of because of that structure, uh, if I put up money, there's always going to be something in excess that's given back, right? So you you basically, by design, have to get something more than you've put in. And so that's part of the really interesting structure. You know, and of course, when it goes public, then it's a stock form of organization and the shareholders legally own uh, uh, that capital, at least on mass. Got it. So, so then... Who gets you? You mentioned sorry, but I wanted a little clarification. Sure. So then, who gets access to the actual IPOs? It's anybody that pretty much deposited money in that bank now has access. Basically, to it? that's it, right? There sometimes you'll get um, uh, a few little. Um, yeah, I would say ninety-five percent of the time it's the depositors. Sometimes the borrowers, every once in a while, get some access, but it's usually almost only depositors and the employees, uh, you know, directors of the bank. Um, and that's having a deposit account is what entitles you. It's, it's like a subscription right, right? You have the right to participate in the offering, in the IPO, 
sort of by design, they're, uh, these typically go off at $10 a share. And um, that money goes straight to the bank and basically recapitalizes the bank. Got it. All right. So, so why is it then called a thrift conversion? I mean, I get the conversion part, right? Yeah. But why, why is it a thrift conversion? Because it's, it, you're basically getting it cheap or like you, you think thrift, you think cheap, right? So, that's, right. so thrift is just a sort of old line term for a savings and loan or a mutual. I mean, I it, would, okay. it would sort of be a little more accurate to say mutual conversion, which is a really uh, uh, another very typical term for the, uh, for these. Um, and so the, the, Thrift is also, uh, you know, a, a common term for them, um, and so that that's where it comes from. Uh, just uh, sort of an old an old timey word for a small bank, small savings. Okay, loan. got it. Okay, so then the upside is when, from an investor's perspective, is okay. I want to invest in this IPO because I know that we all are getting our all of our incentives are going to be completely aligned, and it seems like it's much easier for an activist or activist investors uh, or let's say one activist investor to pool a lot more money in order to make sure that the company after it goes public is being run in a way so that it's friendly to shareholders. And that it, it, is that really the, the thought process there? Yeah, I think that's, that's a lot. The, the, the thrift, the, the activist investors here tend to focus on the banks that are not particularly well run where they're the real, like uh, they tend to be the real catalyst. And of course, on the banks that aren't well run, they tend to trade at cheaper valuations. And, um, you know, often when these banks come public, uh, they have, you know, off, often mediocre at best corporate governance. You've got uh, directors on the board who have never served in on any other public board. They tend to be sort of local business leaders um, and, or, or, you know, buddies of the managers of the bank. And so you definitely have some governance issues here when these things go public. Um, and activism or activists help sort of balance that, counterbalance that. Uh, and that's a real important dynamic here. You know, the, the, an activist can typically take no more than a 10% stake, but often that's a, re that's a really huge stake um, or has a huge outsize impact, especially if they can get a person or two on the board and help sort of shake up the, the board and get things moving if it's, if it's stalled or not taking action uh, on shareholders' uh, best interest. Got it. All right. So, I mean, where have you found the most success when looking at these opportunities? Is it after they've been public for a while and, you know, maybe it was a great deal at first and now it's quote unquote a fallen angel? Or is it better to look at it at, at the IPO and with fresh investor, you know, the activist group and every, like what, when's kind of the right time? I know that's, there's no right or wrong answer here, right? You know, but curious. So, your thoughts. so I think the way to think about this is think about uh, a typical model for thrift conversions, right? And so a typical life cycle here would be you go public, uh, a year after that, you can buy back stock, uh, repurchase your own stock. And if it's trading, as many of these are, maybe most of these are at a discount, sometimes a really substantial discount to tangible book value, then you get immediate accretion, right? Immediate, uh, uh, immediate gain in tangible book value per share by buying back at a discount. Um, and that's after year one. 
Um, and then after year three, uh, you can be acquired, right? And it's not unusual for uh, a big chunk of these banks to be acquired in that this, between that year three and year four period. And then uh, another, and then year four to year five is another big takeout period. So a lot of these banks are acquired about five years after they go public. Uh, and at least over, over time, uh, about 70% of banks of these thrifts conversions have been acquired. Uh, wow. And typically, you know, at least on average, it's been about 140%, not quite 140% of tangible book value. That's been trending down a little bit over time as, as rates have fallen and, and whatnot. So that's the sort of typical life cycle of, of one of these. And um, so, um, sorry, to get back to your original question. Um, it, so it's just important to sort of understand how those might play out. Um, and sorry, uh, could you refresh me on the question, please? Yeah, no, no, it, no worries. Yeah, look, sorry. I, I, I this is honestly like because I didn't uh, full disclosure. I didn't read the book, but like so that's why I'm I'm going dump question sure. one after the other. But like, um, you're talking about the question that you before. Oh, like the in your experience, like do people tend to invest in these? You know, after it's already gone public, oh. and then. Right. And then, or, or right. do they tend to look at it like professionals like you that look at these on a constant basis? Do you look at the IPO? Right. So I, so I think multiple things. Uh, part was uh, you look at that life cycle, that sort of really typical life cycle. And then you think, um, uh, where can I, where can I fit in? Like the, a lot of people are going to invest with that model in mind, right? I'm going to buy relatively early on at a discount and then just ride through each of those checkpoints. Um, until maybe we get a buyout in a three to five year period. That's that's uh, one model. Some of these have been kicking around for 10, 12, 15, sometimes 20 years. And, um, you know, I, I, that model, uh, if you're betting on a 15 year old one to get bought out, it might happen, but it also helps if you've got an activist in there pushing and things like that, right? But a lot of these, as I say, typically are bought out uh, in the three to five year time period. And that's a lot of the model, right? So you invest early or invest at a discount and continue to hold on until you see that appreciation, right? Of course, banks aren't stellar earners here. And a lot of these banks are making two, three, five percent returns on equity, which is not stellar. You're not, you're not going to retire rich on that. You're going to retire rich on the, on the, the multiple expansion, right? And so, you know, fine, you get a little, little extra juice from the ROE, you know, growth in book value, but it's, it's, um, it's really multiple expansion that drives your returns here. So why, why is the ultimate exit more often than not an acquisition of these, you know, rather than just continuing to grow? Yeah. So I think that really lies in the fact that uh, these banks are small, they've got no scale, they will never have scale. Um, and the, the, the economics just aren't there for them really to make acceptable returns on equity, right? I think in general, if you see a, a thrift making 7% returns on equity, that's really pretty good. And it usually has to be, let's say, more than a billion in assets or something like that to be able to do that. A lot of these thrifts are not especially well run, uh, even still. Um, and uh, you know, there's uh, technological issues that sort of constant um, uh, uh, investment in technology that's needed to keep these 
keep these small banks uh, uh, in business. Uh, the legal legal costs, right? And it's like you'd much prefer to spread that out across a bigger asset base, um, or you know, just basically plug that into somebody else's distribution and management sort of network or technology platform. Uh, and that's going to end up being much more uh, advantageous for everybody. And that's that's the real uh, value add here for, or that's the real uh, way to make the money here, right? You you would never otherwise pay one point even one point two times tangible book for a bank that's earning two percent return on equity, right. right? It's the it's it's all the cost savings that can be taken out of the business, all the management that can be stripped out. And all those other costs, right? And so, you know, Rich Lashley is estimating that, you know, you can take what fifty percent of the cost out of this, out of these businesses, right? So um, that's really significant cost savings. And so the economics of consolidation are just undeniable here, right? We've had, and just as a historical point, you know, we had something like forty thousand, you know, financial institutions back in the mid '80s, and we're down to about five thousand, wow. and uh, you know, uh, maybe. 400, 450 of those are thrifts. So it's just going to keep, keep coming. It's, you know, we're going to uh, have more of these. They're going to be consolidated and bought out. Uh, you just can't over time fight the economics, right? Right. Well, <clears throat> that actually led to my next question. And I guess it pretty much answered it for me because I'm thinking to myself, well, are all community banks that are public considered thrift conversions or am I, am I off there? Yeah, so it's the ones that used to be mutually owned, and that's I certainly see. not the case for uh, uh, many banks, many small banks. So some are community focused, right? Started by somebody in that local community, but that were not mutually owned. Um, okay. And so that would be a different setup if if those guys went public, right? Uh, there's different sets of incentives than you would than you would have for. Um, uh, a typical mutual conversion, but you might sort of still have a similar end game in terms of these guys being bought out, the the sort of non-mutuals being bought out because the economics simply aren't there. Got it. All right. So then how do we separate the riff from the raff? You know, what's the crap and what's the, all right, these are qual. these are, these are good. This is good criteria for a potential investment in this, you know? What, yes. what? So I, I tend to, I mean, I, I think the book, what I try to do in the book is really just give you, I have my sort of nine step checklist, which is really just nine uh, things that you can look at really quickly to get a read on the business. And I sort of even further simplify that um, to, to just three, um, just as a, if, if I want to look in one minute or two minutes to figure out, is this worth even more time or, you know, so I really go to um, uh, the price you're paying. So the price relative to tangible book, uh, is that at a discount? How much upside, uh, could I have and sort of what time frame I've got? So if you think a buyout maybe happens in a four year period and I'm buying at 75% of tangible book value and I expect upside to 120% of tangible book value, what do my annualized returns look like there? So thinking about price of tangible book, thinking about return on equity, I, 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 I don't, care about the level so much as I care about just consistently being profitable, right? You just can't expect great things out of these thrifts uh, fun in terms of their fundamental performance. You don't, that's not where you get the juice here. You basically get it from them not blowing themselves up. 
and then and then finally uh, or or uh, insiders frittering the money away in some fashion, and then finally uh, equity to assets. So that gives you some idea about um, how that gives you some measure of safety, right? If they're if they're sitting at eight percent equity to assets, they don't have a lot of uh, room to maneuver uh, and use their balance sheet to create value for investors via buybacks, right? It's less likely that you you might have a uh, an activist come in because the activist can't force them to uh, buy back stock with money you know that they don't have. Uh, so uh, higher equity assets gives them more ability to make them safer and gives them more ability to buy back stock, which is highly accretive at you know discounts to tangible books. So those are the sort of very first three things I look at uh, to sort of get some read. And where do you find these things? I mean, I know I know a lot of community banks, whether they're thrift conversions or not are listed on OTC markets. But so is that, are you just on OTC markets all day? Just kind of seeing what's going on or where, where do you go? A lot of this, a lot of these are traded on the NASDAQ when they come public and um, oh, interesting. the, yeah. Um, so uh, sometimes they will after a year or two shift to OTC. Um, maybe that's a question of, um, um, just less listing fees, all that kind of stuff. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I got you. Um, so, but a lot of them list on the NASDAQ uh, when they, when they go public. And uh, so uh, I, I follow the, I follow S1 filings to see what's coming out. Um, and actually on uh, the website, the zenofthriftsconversions.com, I list uh, all of the upcoming, uh, so recent IPOs, upcoming IPOs. Uh, and usually when they file, it's, three, four, five months before they actually go public. Uh, and then I've got, um, you know, I list on the site all of the uh, non-public banks, non-public mutuals, where if you live locally, um, you can go open a deposit if you want, right? So you can go to the site, figure out, hey, look, I live in New Jersey. I can go open a, uh, an account at X, Y, and Z, and maybe I get to participate in one of these. Have you done that at all? Oh, come on. I, I feel like you, like, Hey, dude, there's a mutual in Jersey. Like, here's here's 500 bucks. Open an account. My name. Let's go. The uh, I mean the the so yeah, I've, I have deposits in individual ones and um, individual banks. I you know one of the things I stress in the book is that that approach, sort of taking part uh, taking part in the IPO, is the one that gets played up a lot. You often get you know a first day pop of maybe 15, 20 percent which is attractive for sure, but you get a lot of gains over time in these. And so it, that first strategy is actually probably the hardest to implement. And uh, one of the, it's, it's easier actually to buy a stock that's already publicly traded. You don't have to tie your money up in the bank for you know, an indefinite period of time. Um, and so uh, that is, uh, you'll miss that first day pop, by buying, you know, by buying actually out on the exchange, but you often have plenty of time to buy. You can buy on your terms. You can take advantage. You know, as we saw in 2020, banks just got hammered. Um, so you can take advantage of that. You know, I was out in late uh, 2020 buying a bank that had gone public a little less than a year ago for 70% of tangible book value, uh, waiting for, and it had a history of repurchases. Right, so there's lots of uh, opportunities out there, 
uh, by buying in the public space. And fine, you don't get that 20%, but you still have substantial upside, right? Let me point to just one, Eastern uh, Bancorp, which I don't own shares in that, uh, but it was it was highlighted in October when they went public. It was actually a quite humongous um, uh, IPO, at least relative to these things. They raised about $1.8 billion. And uh, that started out, it did about a 20% pop on its first day. And since then, uh, it's gone from about $12 to about $18.5. So you could still enjoy a huge chunk, you know, the majority of those returns just buying in the public space. Absolutely. I, I was just going to ask you because at the very top, I, you know, what is a thrift conversion? And give me an example. So you just kind of mentioned one of them, but love to hear, a, you know, a full example of, of one of these thrift conversions and maybe one that you participated in just to explain the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, let me point out um, Harbor One Bank Corp, uh, and that's uh, that's not one I've participated in directly, but it's actually a really unusual one. So the thing is, a lot of these these thrift conversions can kind of go public in two in two different ways, right? They can just IPO all their stock at one time, or so that's a, what's called a standard or one step conversion, and then alternatively, they could do what's called you might guess the two-step conversion, and they sell part of their stock, a minority position in the, in the bank, to the public, and then some years later they do the other part. And so that's that's the approach. This two-step conversion is what Harbor One did uh, back in 2016, and actually they had converted from a credit union uh, uh, not long before that, um, and so they converted from a credit union. They did a first step. Uh, they did the first step of their conversion, I believe, in 2016. Then three years later, they came back. 2019, did the second step, sold the majority position in the bank to the public, uh, and uh, that uh, now they're fully public. And once you're fully public in this situation, uh, it's three years until you're often buyout bait. And uh, the stock is, uh, they're, they're coming up on year two, I believe. Um, and so not too much longer, year and a half or so more, and uh, it might be sort of no holds barred on Harbor One. And Jim, you know, we're talking about the opportunities here and, you know, flowery side of the, you know, what's some of the downside risk in investing in some of these thrift conversions? Yeah, so I think that's one of the things, that's one of the reasons you look at your valuation and you look at how much how much uh, equity to assets they have, right? You, you typically don't, uh, look too closely. You don't have to worry too much. The ba- if the bank is consistently profitable and has decent loan metrics, you know, you're not going to blow up the bank here. Uh, the, the, the real risk here, I think, is management doing something dumb with the cash that they've got, Go out, going out and making an acquisition, buying a bank at, uh, you know, above tangible book value when their own stock, you know, trades at substantially below tangible book value. Uh, uh, giving it away in in uh, compensation in some fashion or perks in some fashion. So that's that's a a lot of a lot of the ways that this is going to blow up is through bad management moves. The the and you sort of guard against that by having a, a big chunk of equity and and looking at the history and making sure that it's at least not. Um, uh, being run too too poorly, and uh, you know, and that's and the ones that are uh, the ones that do look sort of spotty, um, 
that's some of the value of having that activist in there that helps protect that downside, right? Because they're going to fight for things that are that are really going to help shareholders. And uh, so there, there's some of these, some marginal banks that are, it's like, I would not invest in this except for the activist. Uh, and the activists just do not let go in this space. They do not let go. All right. Well, I'd love to hear an investing experience in these things that you've had that you, you learn the most from where you're like, okay, I thought I knew everything about thrift conversions, but that takes the cake right there. Yeah, and so, that alter maybe set you up for the future. Yeah. So I'll point out really one oddball one that I, that I discussed pretty well at length in the book and it's still out there. It's still publicly traded and it's just so weird. Um, <laughs> That it's a TFS financials, so TFSL, uh, and I don't own stock in it, uh, at least currently. I have owned stock in it. And it's in this weirdo. So I just described the sort of the one step, uh, sorry, the, the first step of a conversion and then the, the second step of the conversion. Well, these things trade publicly when they're in this kind of limbo state, right? And that's that's the situation that TFSL is in. And uh for many years, um, so they so they went public in 2007, and for many years they really aggressively bought back stock. They, so they um, the stock was trading sometimes at 40% of partially converted tangible book value, and so they're out there buying it buying it really aggressively. Um, and uh, you know, in some quarters they're literally buying back four and a half percent of their publicly traded stock in a quarter. Right. So like one year they went out and bought uh, 16, 70 percent of their stock in the year. And over like a three year period, I think they bought about 30 percent of their stock. But because of the way the reporting works under GAAP, it's that's virtually uh, uh, impossible to see uh, because in, under GAAP, you're reporting these majority shares that are held by the mutual holding company. And I realize this is really kind of getting technical, but um, the these uh, majority shares that are hold, held by the mutual uh, mutual holding company that haven't been sold to the public, that have no economic claim on the business, um, and uh, are are really in a real sense unissued shares, uh, are being counted as part of the total share count. Right. So uh, the company hasn't received any value. Right for that stock, and yet it's still sort of counted. So as you can quickly see, that really dings. Uh, that makes the market cap look really, really inflated when it isn't. It makes your earnings per share look much, much less. Um, and so that it helps make a bank like that look invisible, right? It, it, for many years, it looked like it was trading at 250% of tangible book value uh, when it's actually trading at 50% of partially converted tangible book. And so there's just this weird disconnect. And so one final point I want to make on this is so they bought back stock, lots of stock for years, um, and they paid a dividend. And guess who was entitled to this dividend? Only the publicly traded uh, shareholders, right? The mutual holding company that held stock for, for uh, on behalf of depositors would waive its dividend. So you'd have this bank where the only economic claim on it was the publicly traded shareholders. And so they would... Uh, uh, around about 2014, they started a dividend, and then they would take out a huge chunk of stock, let's say 10% of stock, and then they'd raise their dividend, and then they'd take out more stock and raise their dividend, right? And so they they started at, uh, 
I don't even remember, 25, 30 cents a share. And then, you know, it's up to a, about a buck 10 a share um, dividend on what at some points has been a $15 stock. And they're still only paying out, you know, 60% uh, of their earnings, right? So, but because of that weirdo structure, you can't see it. In fact, it looks like the bank is overpaying its dividend by 5X, right? It looks like there's no way this dividend is sustainable. Um, and yet it's, they're massive, they're still significantly covered. Man, this, <laughs> this is a special situation as it gets, man. I'm like, I, 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 I'm just so thankful you came on to, to explain some of this. I mean, a bit of that went over my head even a little bit. So if anybody's out there, don't worry, I'm with you. But, <laughs> but I recommend getting the book. Because I think I, I think Jim does I, again. I haven't read it, but if you go on his website and heard some of his interviews, he really does a good job at explaining how this all works and what the opportunity really is. So, I mean, Jim, for anybody listening to this that's maybe a new investor looking at thrift conversions, you know, what's what's some advice that you would have for them? Um, I think the the big thing is uh, start small um, and. Uh, you know, if this is the first time you're looking at, uh, you know, individual banks, start small uh, or individual stocks, uh, start small and, and work your way into it. The, these things, you really need patience, uh, despite the fact that we've seen a run up of 50% in some of these bank stocks in the last three or four months. Uh, they usually don't perform like that. It's, you know, small and steady over time. Uh, and low and tends to be low risk. Uh, and it's just tremendously important that you make smart purchases on these, right? Uh, uh, and by that, I mean at, at discounts to what the bank is really worth because you're not going to make it up in stellar earnings growth, right? And so you make your money on multiple expansion here. And uh, that's just really vital to understand. And then the other aspect of that is thinking about uh, what you might be able to sell, what the what the bank might sell for at some future and and some future time frame, so you can come up with what might be a reasonable uh, annualized return that you could make on these, right? Um, you know, and it, it's really striking. You think, well, an eighty percent discount to tangible book doesn't sound so uh, you know like such an amazing discount, but you know, if you think the if the bank could go for one point two, one point three, maybe even one point four times tangible book in a two or three year period, you analyze that and that is 20% plus returns, right? Or it could be 20% plus uh, returns and you have that low downside. It's just really important when you're a new investor in these thinking about, uh, you know, what types of annualized returns you can get and making sure you're buying smartly. Very good. Well, listen, Jim, before I let you go, how does it feel being a Royal in Cardinals town? <laughs> uh, sorry, being a a Royal and Cardinals town. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I, I haven't gotten any flack for it. Um, the, <laughs> I, uh, when I was growing up, uh, I used to be a bat boy and, uh, oh, that's awesome. for, for during spring training and, uh, for the Dodgers in my hometown. And so was just always, always loved baseball and of course, baseball cards. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's fun to now live in a city with uh, a winning tradition uh, and, uh, you know, sort of, I've only been here a couple of years now, but, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been a fun place. Hey, last year was a great year to be a Dodgers fan. I mean, to be any, I mean, LA, any LA sports fan, that's for sure. Uh, one, okay. One last question what was the most valuable baseball card that you had when you were a kid. Oh, when I had, when I was a kid, uh, probably oh, that, not. you know, 
that that iconic Ken Griffey Jr. card, that number one card on the upper deck. That was the inaugural year of the upper deck cards, 1989. And Ken Griffey was the very first card uh, uh, in there. Yeah, so probably that one. Wow, that's a, that's <laughs> a nice card. I got a Derek Jeter rookie card. I think it's a Topps one. And I, I'm, look, Jeter, I'm Jeter guy. What can I say? But uh, yeah, no, I I have all my stuff in a in a storage bin somewhere. So I, I think uh, I think it's probably about time to dig some of that out. But with that, Jim, where can my audience go and find everything they want to know about you? Follow you on social media and also to buy the book. Yeah, so. Uh, the Zen of thrift conversions.com has it all. Uh, you know, we've got links to links to buy um, as well as, as I mentioned before, recent IPOs, recent conversions, links to the prospectuses. So you can get right into the details if you want uh, timelines. Um, and then of course, any thrifts that might be in your area where you want to be a depositor, right. And see if you can get in on one of these IPOs from the ground floor uh, and then otherwise just, uh, you know, you can, uh, subscribe there or, uh, follow me on Twitter, uh, Jim Royal PhD, uh, on Twitter. So, yeah. Awesome. Jim, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate you, it. Good luck. Stay safe. I look forward <laughs> to our next chat. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks so much. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. This episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman Partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well-equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com.